even as they may be very serious and maybe really want to, you know, work on something that is very advanced and they're playing incredibly uh, uh, skillfully by the time they get there, if you can find a way to relate it to where they are in their personal development, um, that really helps them deepen their understanding and it helps free them up. I think one of the things that happens with kids who are so talented and so focused and so dedicated is they, they get a little stuck in this sort of little perf perfectionism world that they're after. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I will be speaking with Orly Shaham. Hailed as a first-rate Mozartian by Chicago Tribune, Orly Shaham has established an international reputation as one of today's most gifted pianists. Orly Shaham has performed with many of the major orchestras around the world and has appeared in recital from Carnegie Hall to the Sydney Opera House. She's artistic director of Pacific Symphony's chamber series, Cafe Ludwig in Costa Mesa, California, and artistic director of the interactive children's concert series, Orly Shaham's Bachyard, which she founded in 2010. In 2021, Ms. Shaham releases the second and third volumes of the complete Mozart piano sonatas. Ms. Shaham's Mozart recording project also includes volume one of the piano sonatas, as well as her album of piano concertos with St. Louis Symphony. These are included in her discography of a dozen titles on Canary Classics. Orly Shaham is a regular guest host and creative for the national radio program From the Top. Ms. Shaham serves on the piano faculty at the Juilliard School Pre-College Division, and in 2020 to 2021 is on faculty at the College Division. Orly, thanks so much for joining. Such a pleasure to be here with you, Ben. I'd like to begin by talking about Bachyard, a series aimed at children in preschool yeah. through early elementary. In many cases, this is not an age group that world-class performers such as yourself tend to focus much attention on. So can you give <laughs> a sense of how the series works and what inspired you to want to create a program for such a young audience? I think you just said it. That's exactly what inspired me to do that, <laughs> is that this is this is an age that most people in my position wouldn't be involved in. And I looked around and I, you know, I, I kind of did a survey asking all of my fellow musicians for about a year as I would travel around. I said, you know, what age did you first come to music? Uh, and sure enough, 95% said somewhere between the ages of three and six, they had their first amazing life-changing musical experience. And even if they didn't necessarily start playing an instrument then, that that experience guided what they did later. And that's musicians. And I started asking around audience members as well. And I said, do you remember the first time you heard, you know, a concert or went to something? And also the same sort of three to eight years old was about the age. And I thought, gosh, we are not serving this really critical age, which is going to form the basis of our future audience. Great. And can you talk a little bit about how this series works? Yeah, well, in in normal times, yeah, <laughs> anyway, right. This, ser this series works. So it's, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of hard to imagine what it is that we do in 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 the COVID moment that mm -hmm. now is because we basically touch every child who comes to the show and they touch the musicians. Mm -hmm. um, the the premise was so at the time that I created it, 
my own twin boys happened to be about three years old. So I really had them in mind and what their needs were. I mean, I was living the situation, what it, how their brains work, how their attention works, how their uh, excitement and enthusiasm works. So I realized that what you needed to do in these shows was not say to the kids, hey, come and sit in these seats, but say to the kids, hey, let's play with music for 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. And then you should come and sit in some seats and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the premise. The first uh, half hour, 45 minutes of any Bachyard program is totally interactive. We call it backstage up front. You get to um, work with the musicians on activities that are directly related to the kinds of instruments that they play and therefore how they produce sound. So for example, if we're doing a woodwinds program, you know, I have the kids blowing pinwheels. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have them trying to blow a ping pong ball across a little tub of water through a straw so that they can see the manifestation of their breath. Um, and all that before they, you know, maybe get given some kazoos where they actually get to play a wind instrument themselves. And all of this has happened and all of these interactions, usually four or five stations of activities before they're even asked to go inside to the concert hall. And at that moment, they're, the Wrigley's are out, <laughs> the enthusiasm's up, you know, and they've been primed to really take in what we're about to say. And then they sit in their seats and we, we put on a show. So it's about a 35-minute program usually. And I, I'm pretty formulaic about how I put it together so that it, it works with their attention span. Mm-hmm. Um, I very rarely have a piece that's more than three minutes long unless there's a really good reason for what I'm doing with it. And within the pieces that we perform, and it's always chamber music, uh, within the pieces that we perform, there's a story. Uh, usually I write the story and it helps them listen through to a piece. Mm-hmm. There's at least one piece where they're actively standing up and interacting with what we're doing in a somewhat Dalcrozian kind of method. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, you know, and there's there's a couple of pieces where they have to just listen. Uh, and because they get all these other experiences, it turns on the listening too. So it's um, it, over these... I guess 10 years that we've been doing it, we've, we've hit on a, a combination of things that seems to work for most people in this age group. Yeah, that's so interesting that you mentioned Dalcro's Eurythmics, because that was definitely a reaction I had to watching a lot of your yeah. uh, videos. But just so our viewers are clear, although you mentioned that, of course, uh, the concerts took place prior to the pandemic, many of them, I don't know if all of them, but many of them are recorded and available to watch on the internet. And I, I watched all the ones I could find, and they're mm-hmm. really great and helpful to music teachers. And then you have some that are kind of abbreviated, where you speak in the beginning, and then it shows a clip of the concert, then you speak again. And those are only about 10 to 15 minutes. But then there are also so full programs available on the internet as well to watch. Yeah, and, and in fact, during the pandemic last summer, we, we created these 10 episodes, what we call the digital Bachyard, mm-hmm. some of which are include these clips and sort of my introductions, and some of which were really just specifically created for the digital medium. So for example, we had um, uh, the students at the Special Music School in New York the middle school students wrote uh, about Florence Price and they wrote about Florence Price for younger kids. And I Mm -hmm. thought this book was so magnificent that we could actually create an episode of the Digital Bachyard about Mm -hmm. this book and read the book to them as if it's, um, you know, uh, story time. So, I mean, those kinds of experiences have been so much fun to put together actually during this time, this this more creative, right, less formulaic way of approaching the kids. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, you already kind of alluded to a lot of the different strategies you've used to try to encourage active listening in these young audiences. But I do want to talk about some of these strategies one at a time and really hone in and give some ideas for how some of our listeners might be able to use some s- 
similar activities to get their own students to be excited by classical or other music. Uh, one yeah. strategy you use a lot of is what you alluded to already, which is what you call story time. And sometimes the stories go along with a programmatic element of the piece. And in some cases, as you said, you wrote the stories yourself. Can you talk a bit about story time? Yeah, I mean, my, my feeling about these stories, especially the ones that I write, which is the majority of them, is that they are sort of metaphorically guiding the children to what they should be listening for, mm -hmm. right? So instead of me saying, for example, we do this uh, one story on the Beethoven's uh, variations for woodwind trio of Mozart's La Cidarem La Mano. Um, you know, it sounds pretty highfalutin mm -hmm. <laughs> for a three-year-old to understand. But in the variations, there are a number of techniques that Beethoven uses in terms of the instrumentation, right? He, sometimes he'll use the bassoon more, sometimes he's, he'll use the oboe more, that, that sort of thing. And uh, what I did with the story was write something that had nothing to do with the music, but that would capture the kid's imagination, but that would tell them who to listen for and mm. what kind of music they were going to hear from that instrument. So the story is actually about three animals and my musicians, um, people who perform on the backyard know there's going to be costumes. <laughs> they have to wear, you know, little costumes or masks or something that identifies them as the animal. Yes. And, you know, I'll say, well, this animal is about to just go running around in circles. And then in the next variation, sure enough, it's that instrument that is doing the, the fast notes. It's that kind of you know, things that are obvious to us as adults, mm -hmm. those connections, but that for the kids, they might not know when I said, oh, listen for the really fast note instruments. Sometimes they don't know what that means. Right. But if I say, listen to the bunny hopping, <laughs> it's pretty clear to them. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of when I was a child watching some of those old cartoons that had classic music or Fantasia. I don't know if you saw the Fantasia movies where they Absolutely. create their own stories to go along with classical music. And it sustains children's attention for a much longer period than they might get if they just sat and listened. You know, you may have you may have just unearthed my internal formula without my, <laughs> okay. my no, because I, I grew up on Fantasia right. and, uh, you know, certainly all those Looney Tunes based on yes, the music. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, then another strategy that you use that I really like, which um, you mentioned earlier, is um, encourage active audience participation. So in some cases, um, assigning children's actions to do based on when a certain motif arises. Mm -hmm. And this idea reminds me of, as you mentioned and as I mentioned, Crow's Eurythmics. Can you talk about yeah. how you encourage active audience participation and movement in your series? You know, one of the, the most important things about that, I think a lot of times when we approach that sort of thing, because we approach it as adults and we think, oh, it has to be perfect. They have to get it right or we've done something wrong. And actually, that's really not the point of the exercise at all. Um, so I I give the, ki the kids lots of different inroads to understanding what it is they might do. And of course, that age range that we do three to eight is a big age range. So eight-year-olds can really understand, oh, stand up here and wave your hand around or march in place. Um, that's piece of cake to them. Mm -hmm. may not be quite that easy for the three-year-old. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't worry about, are they all getting it? Are they mm -hmm. all getting it all the time? In fact, I almost always have a demonstrator in the front of the stage who is just showing them what they're supposed to do right so even if they actually aren't listening at that moment they still feel like their listening is being rewarded mm -hmm. um in a sense and then you know i i do i make sure that there are uh auditory clues for what are you supposed to do mm -hmm. when and mm -hmm. we actually as part of that whole process this is one of my favorite parts of our backyard shows we rehearse right so i will take apart like that spot where 
they're going to have to hear that that really high note means that you raise your hand as high as you can. Yes. And we, we practice, you know, and I actually have them try, go up, and I try to get as many of them going as possible. And I think that that side of it is really important, too. That's, that's my little secret, uh, you know, understory of the whole thing, which is if you are interested in doing music in any way, you're going to have to be practicing, right? Rehearsal is going to be part of this process. Mm. And then I, I encourage them to perform when we actually go through the piece as a whole. So they, they're introduced to that concept, too, that you're going to have to work through these things a few times, and then you get the chance to perform. Right, yeah. Uh, I remember watching you do uh, the episode with Beta Moon's Curious Engine. You did what you described, where they stand up in a certain yes. motive and sit down, depending on which motive was played. And at least in the video that I watched, it seemed like everyone was getting it. You know, it's very funny. Over the years, I've done this show in many different places, and some audiences are just better than others. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, probably wouldn't surprise you to hear that at Princeton University, the kids are really bright. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, then the next strategy that you use that I want to talk about, which you also alluded to a little bit earlier, is arts and crafts. Um, you don't only do this in the Bachyard concerts and videos themselves, but there's also an accompanying activities website that has many do-it-yourself yes. arts and crafts projects. Can you talk about using the visual arts as a method of promoting active listening? Well, you know, I think the the question for us as educators is trying to, you know, give give kids an opening to feel like music is for them, that it's accessible to them. Um, the question for us is, what tools are we going to use? And I say, let's use all of them. Uh, and what three-year-old hasn't sat in a class and, you know, put googly eyes on a, on a, on a you know, figure that they've drawn? So if you can use that thing, which they already know, as some way of connecting them to the sound that those eyes make. And, you know, one of the things we, we used to do for years at the Bachyard, um, in, in the days before I got my soda stream, <laughs> I would collect, um, I would collect, you know, sparkling water plastic bottles in my house because okay. uh, that's what I drink, right? So I would have hundreds of these. And so then we would bring them to the shows and the kids would uh, would put things inside of those bottles. And we had things that were quiet, like uh, maybe pieces of felt or uh, pipe cleaners. We had things that were noisy and different levels of noisy, right? High pitches, low pitches, you know, actual bells or just things that would clank around. And they would basically make their percussion instrument, but they would do it one item at a time and then listen to what that did to the sound that they made. So it's very familiar to them because lots of preschools use recycled materials. Mm -hmm. Lots of preschools use pipe cleaners, you know, <laughs> all of that was so normal. But the concept of then, okay, listen really carefully to the difference this makes in the sound. That was our, our into music. And just so our listeners are clear, a lot of the activities you're describing are on the website. It's bachyard.com slash activities, I believe. And there's a big list of activities, many of which I'm planning on using in my own studio. So um, that's a really great resource. Uh, okay, then. Uh, so your uh, Bachyard is, of course, geared for larger audiences, whereas many of our listeners are interested in one-on-one -on -one lessons. But I still believe that it's important to encourage active listening as a part of a private lesson. And on this podcast, I recently had on uh, Doreen Hall, who wrote a book about teaching piano to preschoolers, and the book consistently stressed the importance of listening activities. So I'm wondering if you've ever tried any of the types of activities you do in Bachyard, maybe in a modified format in the context of a one-on-one -on -one lesson. And if not, do you have any advice for teachers who would like to get their private ex students as excited by classical music as you do with your larger audiences in Bachyard? 
you know, actually all our activities that I can think of can easily be modified to just one kid. I used to test them out on my twins uh, before, you know, before implementing them in the show. So we would just have the two kids. It does it does help for the kids just to have a buddy. So, you know, if you have a studio, I would suggest if there's any way in that little five minute window when one kid's leaving, the other one's coming in, maybe you do a game that they do together like that. that, That works. Because it, it helps them to know they're not the only one for some of these activities. But all of them can be scaled to lots of sizes. I've also done over the years, the Bachyard has gone into schools a little bit mm-hmm. and, you know, just done this for small classes there as well. That, it, that, that works wonderfully well. What's nice is, you know, it works when we have 800 in the audience and it works when we have eight. <laughs> uh, and, and you can kind of do everywhere in between. Huh. Okay. Uh, now I'd like to talk about what music is featured. Uh, as a composer myself, I was very impressed by how much contemporary music you included in your series. I couldn't Yay. actually, I actually really tried. I could not think of a single other program that introduces preschool music, preschool children to contemporary classical music with composers such as Steve Rye, Steve Mackey. Um, and in the latter case, the composer, I believe, wrote a piece specifically for Bachyard. For us, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about your frequent use of contemporary music and how you avoid having young children feel alienated by it the same way sometimes older audiences do? Quite quite the contrary to alienated. Young mm-hmm. people respond to contemporary music much more positively than older. Yeah, and there's I, no I, stigma I mean, that they have. There's no yeah. stigma, and they just go with what sounds good. And I can even tell you this. I mean, when I, there was for a while I was teaching a course called Music Humanities at Columbia University. These were 19, 20, 21 year olds, they also had no problem with contemporary mm. music. You know, mm. they're, uh, most of them weren't already musical, right? So they didn't, it, you know, those of us who go through conservatory, maybe around our uh, high school years, we start to mm-hmm. become snobs. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> but these, these kids, because they were not musicians, they were open to everything. And in fact, it was much easier for them to relate to a lot of the contemporary music, which is only natural. It is being written. Mm-hmm. In the time that they're living, it makes perfect sense that they should connect more to the sounds and the, you know, the, the meanings of those. So with the kids, first of all, uh, I, I thought, uh, I'm absolutely not going to limit them in any way. We Obviously, it's called the Bach Yard. We always start with Bach, uh, but we always play everything in between. And uh, there's at least one contemporary piece per program, usually more than one. Wow. And over over the years, I've commissioned a number of, like Beata Moon, who wrote that Curious Engine mm-hmm. you were referring to. She We commissioned her to write that. Um, and we've we've asked a number of other composers. So uh, if you feel like it, Ben, we could we can always use another piece in <laughs> the backyard, an interactive <laughs> piece. <laughs> okay. And you know what's been fun about that project is that we. Um, we ask the composers not to think of the whole thing. So we're not asking you to say what is going to be the interactive portion to make to connect this the kids to this piece. We're just asking the composer to write a piece that they love and that they think would sort of be fun for somebody that age to listen to. And then we come up with the educational oh. content that's going to work with oh, it. Oh, I didn't I think, realize that. I think that really frees up the composers to write something they just love. Oh, I thought the composer was responsible for the lesson plan. <laughs> okay. Um, Great. Now, I'd like to talk about this idea that we've been talking about, about hearing versus listening, and now discuss it for children who are a bit older. You teach at the Juilliard Pre-College, where you work with students who are musically at a 
I assume, drastically more advanced level than the children you target in your Bachyard yeah. series. Although I'm <clears throat> not sure how many of our listeners teach quite as large of a skill difference as that. I know many teachers are always thinking about <laughs> how to adapt their teaching to more and less advanced students. Can you talk about the differences in your approach towards working with extremely advanced children at Juilliard versus the younger, less experienced listeners you target in Bachyard? Do you see any overlap in your approach, at least philosophically, or do you see them as completely discrete? That's a terrific question. I think, you know, our, at least for me, my inclination was to see them as completely discrete, but my experience has taught me that that's not true. And that the part that we often miss uh, with kids who are more skilled and who are more talented is that they're still kids. Hmm. And if you can remember that, and if you could find ways to tap into their kid side, um, even as they may be very serious and maybe really want to, you know, work on something that is very advanced and they're playing incredibly uh, skillfully by the time they get there, if you can find a way to relate it to where they are in their personal development, hmm. um, that really helps them deepen their understanding and it helps free them up. I think one of the things that happens with kids who are so talented and so focused and so dedicated is they, they get a little stuck in this sort of little perf perfectionism world yeah. that they're after. Yeah. Um, and if you can say to them, you know, I, mean, I, I actually, just to relate it to myself, I remember I, I had my teacher when I was studying with Nancy Stesson, who was the wife of the man Her Herbert Stesson, who became my lifelong teacher afterwards. Um, she had me assign, you know, uh, sort of tell a story through the pieces. I would have been like seven or eight, you know, and she asked me what is going on here. And maybe it was her or maybe it was me. Um, the theme of the backyard already started then because I, of course, my story was about animals um, <laughs> and they were doing this and that and somehow. And that, even though I was clearly very serious, this was with some Schumann pieces that I was learning, I, I probably could have related to them just as music and she could have gotten away with it. The fact that she gave me that other slightly more creative outlet as well, I think, uh, was so important. Was yeah, so I wish helpful. I had had something like that at that age. So. Yeah. I, you know, and it's rare. I, my, the, when I moved to her husband, who was a much more, he was the one teaching at Juilliard, for example, you know, he didn't do that. Um, that, wasn't, that wasn't what he was, how he thought about music, which mm -hmm. is fair enough. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it is one of those things you know, and I find this with older kids, too. So, for example, in my studio right now, I have, you know, some high school kids, but then I also have some college students at different levels, you know, freshmen all the way through senior. And the the places where they are in their own personal development. So, you know, the freshman is is just trying to figure out how to do laundry. Right? And <laughs> yeah. I, if, I, if, I, if I can keep that in mind while we're mm -hmm. working on his unbelievable Chopin preludes, mm -hmm. um, that really helps as opposed to the senior who is putting together auditions for master's program mm -hmm. maybe, you know, and is doing the Berg Sonata. Um, it, keeping in mind where they are in their lives, mm. I think really helps you teach more directly to what they need. I've definitely been trying to do a lot more of that in my own teaching. I'm really enjoying Janine Jacobson's piano pedagogy textbooks, which talk a lot about the emotional and psychological development of different age groups, in addition to giving purely musical suggestions. Finally, as your bio indicates, we focus today only on a very small sliver of what you do. Can you give everyone a sense of what you're up to now and how our listeners can learn more about you? Well, uh, you know, this pandemic has been an interesting time. 
the first thing that I realized that I, what I do in normal times is it's mostly solos with orchestra and it's then a fair amount of chamber music as well and, and some solo recitals. That's, that's the bulk of my, my performing life. Um, in pandemic times, recordings work really well. So I, yeah, I recorded all these Mozart piano sonatas, which we managed to actually finish this recording during the pandemic. Congratulations. Which incredible feat of, uh, of apps and technology <laughs> and uh, social distancing and the internet. <laughs> um, and so we've been releasing those Mozart sonatas. The first album's already out and the, the next four will be coming. But we've already recorded all of that. So that's one thing. Um, I've... I do this hosting of uh, From the Top, which is an incredible program all about young musicians. I've had such a, actually a learning experience as a teacher just by interacting with these because they, on From the Top, they, they tend to have some guests who are maybe 10 or 11 on, and then they're, you know, all the way up to 18. And again, the difference in what each of these ages is able to do or interact with, and I, I often perform with them as well as interview them. I've learned so much from their perspectives on mm -hmm. what it is that they're doing. Um, and of course, you know, always uh, recording, streaming. I've got uh, some concerts that are coming up on, on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I managed to actually play with other professionals last Saturday in a very masked environment, <laughs> which was amazing. Okay. So, you know, li life takes you, this is one of the thing about the things about being a professional musician, life takes you where it takes you, and um, you should just enjoy the ride. Oh, that's great that you've been able to do such a wide range of activities that really target everyone. I mean, from the youngest of the young to the most esteemed seasoned professionals. I mean, that's really, really impressive. Um, Orly, it was so great speaking to you. Thanks so much for joining today. Such a pleasure, Ben. Such terrific questions. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. I'll see you next time.